This is a podcast from the Nuffield Department of Medicine. Professor Chris Pugh tells about the links between genetics, renal disease and oxygen sensing. Hello Chris. Hello Anna. What is the contribution of genetics in renal disease? Well the kidney is a very complicated organ. We might think of it as simply making urine but in fact it controls all sorts of parts of the internal environment. So it controls blood pressure, it controls salt and water metabolism, it controls calcium and phosphate balance, and intriguingly it also controls the number of red blood cells we have in our bodies. So genetics has had impacts in all sorts of ways in renal disease because gene defects can lead to malfunction in all sorts of different parts of that system. A while back when Peter Harris was working here, he identified the genes involved in polycystic kidney disease by genetic approaches. That's the commonest inherited cause of kidney failure. Raj Thacker's group in Oxford have extensively worked on calcium and phosphate metabolism and they've identified all sorts of genes involved by that uh, mechanism. Um, But my own work with Peter Ratcliffe has concentrated on the oxygen sensing functions of the kidney and its ability to produce this hormone erythropoietin. Could you tell us about the link between oxygen sensing and renal disease? Well, the kidney is the primary source of this hormone erythropoietin in adult human beings, and in kidney failure, it fails to make that hormone and patients become anemic. And the question Peter asked right back in 1989 was how does the kidney sense changes in oxygen levels? And I joined him in the lab shortly after that, and the first thing we did was to identify a bit of DNA flanking the erythropoietin gene that was responsible for its oxygen regulation. That itself was quite interesting, but the thing that made it really important was the discovery that parallel oxygen sensing mechanisms worked in every cell in the body and controlled a whole variety of different genes. So since that first step, we've gone on to work out how this all all works. And these fragments of DNA work because proteins bind to them. Greg Semenza at Johns Hopkins identified the the proteins that bind to this bit of DNA and called the complex HIF, a hypoxia-inducible factor. And the work that Peter and I have done, along with probably over 100 people in the lab and people in other labs around Oxford, has been to work out how HIF is regulated. And one component of the HIF complex is regulated both in terms of protein stability and in terms of how active it is, by oxygen availability. And the key finding, which we made along with uh, Chris Schofield's group in the chemistry department and help from Jonathan Hodgkin's group in genetics, was to identify the enzymes that modify the HIF protein when oxygen is present and determine its function. Um, So we first found one of these enzymes in the C. elegans worm, and we then, from that uh, enzyme, were able to identify the equivalent enzymes in human beings. And these enzymes actually use oxygen itself in the modification of the HIF protein. So they themselves actually sense the availability of oxygen. When oxygen's present, they work well, modify the HIF protein and inactivate it. When oxygen is lacking, the enzymes work less efficiently. The HIF protein remains stable, remains active, and can drive the expression of a variety of genes. And those are genes that control all sorts of processes, energy metabolism, blood vessel growth, as well as erythropoietin, the original paradigm gene. So what are the most important lines of research that have developed over the past five or ten years? Well, I think following on from the identification of those enzymes, we've been very interested in working out what they do in biology. 
And it would have been very simple if there was one enzyme that did everything. But in fact, we found three enzymes that affect HIF protein stability and one enzyme that affects its activity. And they're expressed in different amounts in different tissues, and the amounts vary with different stimuli as well. So taking that biology apart is really important for any application that might follow. The other thing that's interesting is these enzymes are part of a superfamily of genes, and there are probably 70 or 80 similar enzymes in the human genome. So it's opened the door to beginning to explore what all these other genes might do that themselves might be regulated by oxygen level, or indeed iron level, or metabolite level in, in the body. So why does your line of research matter, and why should we put money into it? Well, oxygen's a pretty fundamental requirement for human life, and it's very important that we our bodies control the delivery of oxygen to every cell at an appropriate level. And we all know what happens if there isn't enough oxygen around, but actually it can also be toxic if there's too much oxygen around. So this very fine balance that makes sure that oxygen reaches every cell in the body at just the right level is really important. And a whole spectrum of diseases depend on uh, problems with oxygenation. So if there's narrowing in a blood vessel to the heart, patients experience angina, and that's because the heart muscle cells are not getting enough oxygen and enough nutrients for their metabolic demands. And this system is triggered under those circumstances. And what we wonder is whether if we could increase the triggering of this system, we could actually help the body adapt to that low oxygen state. As another example, as cancers grow, they outgrow the oxygen supply that would normally be, be present. And in fact, they would only get to one or two millimetres across if they didn't grow new blood vessels into the core of the tumour. And the way in which they do that involves hijacking this normal physiological mechanism. So if we can understand how they hijack the mechanism, and there are several ways in which they do that, maybe we could interfere with that and slow the growth of tumours or limit them so that they couldn't get beyond one or two millimetres in size. That's a sort of broad overview. In fact, the work over the last five years has shown that the system is very complicated. There are many feedback loops within it, and we'll need to be very careful in designing interventions to maximise the potential benefit. But that's part of the interest, part of the fun, and part of the excitement, working out how to make it really, really work. And how does your research fit into translational medicine within the department? Well, I think it provides one example of dissecting a physiological pathway uh, that then has led on to a lot of interest by international pharmaceutical companies in finding drugs that, that target the particular enzymes that we've identified. There are many such programs going on. The links to these other enzymes actually link with a number of other groups around the, around the department. And one of the, the exciting things over the last 20 years has been our ability to collaborate with a large number of other groups in Oxford and outside to move the science forward as effectively as possible. Thank you, Chris. My pleasure.